This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask poets to pick a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's appeared in the magazine. My guest today is Arthur Z. Arthur has received the Landon Literary Award, the Jackson Poetry Prize, and in 2019, the National Book Award in Poetry. Welcome, Arthur. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So the poem you've chosen to read is The Problem of Describing Trees by Robert Haas. What was it about this poem that drew your attention when you were looking over the archive? I wanted to choose a poem that would be a nice pairing with the poem of my own that I'm going to read later in the program. And I love the compression to this poem of Bob Haas's and also how it appears to be about nature, but then it expands and it ends up talking about language and then it ends up talking about poetry and art and it keeps opening up. So that's one of the things I really admire. Well, why don't we listen to the poem? Here's Arthur Z reading The Problem of Describing Trees by Robert Haas. The Problem of Describing Trees The aspen glitters in the wind and that delights us. The leaf flutters, turning, because that motion in the heat of August protects its cells from drying out. Likewise, the leaf of the cottonwood. The gene pool threw up a wobbly stem and the tree danced. No, the tree capitalized. No, there are limits to saying in language what the tree did. It is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us. Dance with me, dancer. Oh, I will. Aspens doing something in the wind. That was The Problem of Describing Trees by Robert Haas, which was originally published in the June 27th, 2005 issue of the magazine. Thanks for reading that and so wonderfully. The two things that come to me uh, right away, I mean, there's many things, is that great line, it is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us. I agree. It's a wonderful line. I think it, it's kind of a shock, actually. Uh, I think, and for me, it harkens back to the opening stanza where it says, you know, the aspen glitters in the wind and that delights us. And that delight to me is a form of enchantment. And it's you know, looking at nature, obviously, and being moved and creating a kind of a spell. But there's also a spell to poetry and to art. And of course, the poem enacts a kind of enchantment, and then it disrupts it, it breaks it. And to me, it's like waking up from a dream. And it interests me that the word sometimes 
because it's not, it is good for poetry to disenchant us, but it is good sometimes. Right. So there's this kind of like wanting it both ways. I want the enchantment. <laughs> I want the disenchantment. Right. And I want to be under the spell and I want to be able to wake up. Mm -hmm. I think that's well said. I mean, I, I love too how it happens in the poem with those no's and the tree danced. No. Uh, and so there's this other voice arguing with itself almost throughout the poem. And the second to last line slash stanza, it says, dance with me, dancer. Oh, I will. It's kind of getting us to think about this, not so much as an argument with the self or with the natural world, but uh, a dance. And I love that moment, too. Yeah, for me, that is such a surprising moment because earlier in the poem, in the tree danced, but um, in the text of the poem, it's in italics. And the first time I read it, I remember thinking, wait a minute, who's talking? <laughs> is the person talking to the tree? Is the tree talking to a person? Is some voice out of the blue talking to both? Or, you know, there's a wonderful charm to it. Yeah, yeah. It's both innocent and kind of a grown thing to say, dance with me, dancer. Oh, I will. There's a kind of knowing tone to that but also a, a kind of promise and disenchant dance, that kind of slant rhyme, or it's almost full. There's a real interesting slippage there between sort of disenchantment dancing and then the subject of the poem itself. I agree. And there's also that invitation to uh, start moving, you know, in one's body, in one's language. Then... I think a, a different poet might end, oh, I will, you know, like, oh, I stuck at the landing. But here, <laughs> uh, Haas goes and says, Aspen's doing something, you know, which is a, even more vague, I think, than the sometimes or, or more ambiguous, that's a better way of putting it. How do you take that ending, uh, that ambiguity that he returns us to? Well, again, I, I'm going to back up a second and say, I think it's set up with a sometimes for poetry. And then the something, the Aspen's doing something in the wind is so marvelous because it's kind of a precise imprecision. The speaker of the poem has struggled to make language do certain things and arrives at a kind of limit or recognition of limitation. And so if a speaker can't really describe what the Aspen's have been doing, at the end to say Aspen's doing something in the wind, there's a kind of tension, I think, of wanting to get it right in language, recognizing the limitations of language, and also a kind of release of saying, okay, this is the best I can do. I'm letting it be. It does something in the wind, and it leaves it up for the reader to really imagine and see it. Yeah, I mean, there's almost an acceptance of the Aspen as Aspen um, rather than something else. And a later version of the poem includes the mountains in that. It's not just the Aspens sort of doing something. And I wonder how that changed, which we don't have right here in the magazine. That's interesting because he's not just saying that Aspens, which are one thing he's singled out, but in a way the world is doing something in the wind. Yeah, absolutely. In both cases, there's a kind of circle, a return. The poem opens with the image of Aspen glitters and then Aspen's doing something. But to insert mountains and sky, I think, is a really interesting uh, shift. I think uh, Bob is probably, I'm guessing, trying to open up a kind of landscape. The Aspens are small. And for me, if you have mountain sky, Aspen's doing something. It sort of starts large and then it funnels down. So he's 
playing with perspective. And I'm not sure which is better, but they're both interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they're both very good. Um, and I also wonder about this us, because I think Bob is really good at being able to say that we, which I think does delight us, both the saying and the Aspens that he's mentioning. How do you think about that us, the we in this poem? Um, I think that's a wonderful point. I think the us pulls in a reader by implication. You know, on a literal level, it could be that the speaker of the poem is there with someone else. But I also feel like the speaker of the poem feels a kind of urgency, but also a kind of permission to speak for people in general. So that includes more than the speaking self. And so then it it really invites the reader into the experience of the poem. Well, it also, I think, just occurs to me, kind of confirms its status as lyric. And the lyric poem is always one of song and it often is self-aware. It thinks about fragment. And in the American landscape, there's this I that is a we often. Um, and here I, I love that the we, it doesn't fall apart, but it's arguing with itself throughout, you know, and the tree dance, no, the tree capitalized, no, there are limits to saying in language what the tree did. And I love that, that the tree is really active and the tree almost becomes embodied. And I loved what you said uh, earlier on as you described the poem as enacting. And that's something I try to get my students or, or readers to think about a lot is, you know, the poem is enacting exactly what it's talking about. Uh, it isn't describing the tree, it is embodying it, enacting this experience. And, and some of the experiences, it not being able to satisfy fully in language what the tree did or what the I or the we felt. Uh, I think that's important. There's a limit, as you mentioned, um, but there's also a testing of the limit that I think is one of the lyrics great qualities. Absolutely. I agree with everything you said. And to return to the plural, the us, you know, when it says it is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us, it interests me that isn't the speaker saying to disenchant me. Again, there's the sense of poetry has this function and it does it for people everywhere. Well, and I think there's also a sense, maybe this is a larger sense of uh, Haas's poetry in general, that there is something about nature that it's being argued over. You know, the us includes nature. And, you know, I love that the enchantment's already happened. So now, now there's the disenchantment to come, you know, and, and that's, that's great. It doesn't start with that. And I think of Marian Moore, I too dislike it, you know, when she's talking about poetry. There's a sort of unease that poets sometimes feel. Is it with language in nature? I'm not sure but that is being negotiated out. Yeah, I, I think Haas, as, as a poet, is making the reader not just be lulled into the experience of the poem and have that enchantment. You suddenly wake up and then you have to assess critically, and but you don't want to give up that sense of enchantment either because that's what pulled you into the poem. So for me, there's this wonderful kind of push and pull that happens. And as you say, maybe without an easy resolution, and that's part of its meaning. Absolutely. Now, in the October 19th, 2020 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your poem, Vectors, which you'll read for us shortly. Did you want to tell our readers anything about the poem first? Anything to know going in? Uh, just as a preface, I, I'd like to say that vectors can mean several different things. And in mathematics and science, 
a vector is simply a quantity that has direction and magnitude. Uh, in physics, it can be used to describe a force. But basically, I think of it as a directed line segment. It starts somewhere and it moves in a certain direction with force. And the other meaning of vectors I would call a reader's attention to is from biology, which is that it's an organism that transmits basically a disease from one organism to another. So for instance, a mosquito can be a vector of malaria. So those two meanings of vectors are sort of underlying the poem as the reader listens to what unfolds. Great. Here's Arthur Z reading his poem, Vectors. Vectors. First extinction in the Galapagos Islands, the least vermilion flycatcher. Hopis drill a foot deep and plant blue corn along a wash. Danger, a woman brushed on the side of a napalm bomb. In an oblong box emptied of firewood, a black widow web. Shaving, he nicked himself and stared in the mirror in a moment of blood. Out of a saddlebag, a teen pulls a severed goat's head. Before signing his name, he recalls hotel rooms were once used as torture chambers. In Thessaloniki, the beach attendant made a gun of his hand and fired at him. Prisoners cackled when the inmate on stage said, Is it not time for my painkiller? Weighing mushrooms, the Tibetan cashier grins. You suffer from suspicion. I suffer from kindness. A mercenary turned car mechanic spilled a pile of Krugerrands onto the table. Looking up from a tusk under the lamp, the carver smiled. It's butter in my hands. That's Arthur Z reading Vectors. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So this poem is so mysterious and beautiful to me. I'm so happy it's in the magazine. And one of the questions I had is just, 
you know, you so nicely framed what a vector is, but I also think of it as a poetic form almost that you've created. Here are these disparate moments, uh, these lyric leaps, but there's something that connects them. Uh, is there something specific for you that connects them or is, it, is that part of the mystery of the poem? Uh, I guess I'll, I'll equivocate and say both. <laughs> it is part of the mystery of the poem. But I also um, want to say, I, this is sort of personal background, but it's incidental and yet it's interesting. I was working on a longer poem and I uh, was very frustrated with it. And I had a section that had a bunch of fragments in it. And I just like was going to put the whole thing aside. And then I looked at the fragments and I thought, you know, there are one or two that have a kind of heat or a life to them. And I thought to myself, you know, I should just go with that. I should just try and not really, you know, know where I'm going or be in control, but let come out of sort of the subconscious, these moments that have a kind of charge, a kind of force to them. And so I ended up writing, you know, maybe 20 or 30 of them. And then they sort of sifted down to these. Each one has almost like a little vignette behind it. But ultimately, I was thinking there are so many worlds to the world that we live in. And each one of these lines and vectors is like a, a microcosm, a mini world. And together, instead of creating or narrating a kind of story, I'm trying to unfold or reveal almost a field of energy so these different lines, like you say, they seem to be scattered, going in different directions, but there's something unseen that's also connecting them. Well, and I, I think there's something about e extinction and uh, resistance, uh, certainly from the first line, and, and that phrase, that uh, name, the least vermilion flycatcher. I mean, what a haunting name, and then also a haunting act, extinction. And I think one of the things you get us to think about is how these small, let's call them extinctions, really have a huge resonance. Uh, and they echo out, and we may not notice, but the poet notices. Uh, the vectors notice, the energy, as you put it, notices. And there's something also about that third line, danger. I feel like many of them are, are consumed by danger, but danger, a woman brushed on the side of a napalm bomb, and that, in retrospect, strange tradition of painting, you know, a figure, a pinup or something on, on a, a weapon of mass destruction. I, I wonder about how those kind of dangers knit together, and do they also echo in our moment of danger? Well, I think they all echo in our moment of danger, definitely. And again, as I said, each line is almost like a one-line haiku. It's kind right. of like a flash. But I feel that each line has a sense of danger, or if not overtly danger, a sense of urgency underlying each. So, for instance, the line you quoted about, you know, a woman brushing danger on the side of a napalm bomb made me think a lot about compartmentalization. You know, things are dangerous, but maybe not always dangerous in the way we acknowledge or or maybe we take certain dangers and we try to make them manageable by, you know, brushing danger on the side of it. I mean, the poem is full of difficulties and challenges, like the speaker who, before he signs into the hotel room, he suddenly stops and thinks, oh, wait a minute, it, this isn't just a luxury hotel room or a nice hotel room. People were actually tortured once in this space. And then that totally transforms that moment. 
Right. I was reading the woman as the figure of danger, but she herself uh, is, is she's writing danger in a way. Uh, what's it mean to write danger on something? Uh, is that a warning or is that like a threat? That's how I, I felt about a lot of the moments, like the Thessaloniki moment with the gun of his hand and fired at him. On the one hand, you know, it's such an innocent image. And on the other hand, so fraught. And I just, there's something really powerful and cumulative about it. It is a set of microcosms, but it, for me at least, adds up to a kind of macrocosm of danger, of fraughtness, and this tension between the thing one can make out of the danger and you know loss, say, glass line, which is just really haunting, looking up from a tusk under the lamp, the carver smiled, it's butter in my hands. And this combination of, I presume, ivory being turned into butter, which is sort of an everyday thing, but linking these histories of that, which has a lot to do with poaching and and death and other stories of colonization, let's say, and this butter in one's hands. Yeah, absolutely. And to pick up with your earlier comment, the different vectors all combine to make this macrocosm. And it's really in a way to show urgently how so much is at stake in the world. So much is going wrong. Yes, without naming elephants or there's that whole issue of poaching and the whole trade of ivory and then carving and the arrogance of the carver who also feels empowered and the sense of, like you said, the ivory that's just reduced to butter. You know, for me, I'm not sure I'm the best uh, explainer of my own poems. It had a kind of mystery and a kind of resonance. And as I assembled the poem, I played with the orchestration and I felt like it was growing into something mm. much larger. Like each line was like the tip of an iceberg. Yes. And underneath there was something much larger at stake and then together, when I got to that line, it's butter in my hands, I felt like, that's it. You know, I, mm. I can't go beyond that. It's like, makes this whole powerful macrocosm. Well, I wonder about that, too, thinking about uh, an earlier poem of yours from April of 2020, Transpirations, that also has a similar form at first glance, but it has a very different tone. How do you see its fragments, say, versus these fragments? Uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, your larger body of work here. I think Transpirations, which is also in one-line stanzas, I would say the rationale for both poems to be in one-line stanzas is that I want silence, I want some breathing room between the lines so that a reader isn't rushed. I feel like my poems can be very dense imagistically, and if the lines happen one after the other consecutively, it just becomes overwhelming for a reader. And I mean, that can be an interesting effect, but I really want the reader to have the chance to sort of almost meditate or weigh what's been said and have a little breathing room. So with that said, that they have the same form, they're very different poems. For me, Transpirations is about organically living. Uh, at what point it says, uh, have you lived with utmost care? I guess there's a sense of urgency of living in the kind of world out of balance. Mm -hmm. Both of these poems have that. But in the earlier poem, there's the kind of lyric motion toward look and appreciate and experience the beauty of the world. And have you made the most of your life, really? How have mm -hmm. you lived? 
Well, and transpirations reminds me of what has transpired, but also inspiration. And there's that lovely return to, I think, poetry, both in the Western and Eastern traditions, to use those sort of clumsy terms. But um, I love the tension there. You mentioned haiku, and I wanted to maybe follow up with you just quickly about that. I love haiku. I can't quite write them myself. They're really hard. Uh, they seem easy. You know, people try them uh, <laughs> counting syllables, but um, I think it's uh, Etheridge Knight. He says, counting syllables ain't no square poet's job or something, um, <laughs> you know, and and I've just finished this anthology of African-American poetry, and I was struck by the the amount of haiku in the tradition. African-American poets reaching toward haiku for different reasons. Uh, most powerfully, I think, Sonia Sanchez among them. But I wondered, uh, you know, about your sense of haiku, how it plays in your work. Uh, how do you read it? How do you approach it? How do you see it in a poem like Vectors? Um you know, I read ancient Chinese, classical Chinese. I've translated classical Chinese poetry into English. If I look at a Japanese haiku, I'm thinking, for instance, of a Kobayashi Isa haiku that's usually translated as the daikon picker points the way with a daikon. Certain Japanese characters exist in the Chinese language, and they're called kanji. So when the speaker says points the way, the character is Tao, as in Taoism. So it's not just the way into a village, it's a way of living, a whole lifestyle. So I love the layering that haiku can do. I love the compression, the immediacy. And also, when you look at Japanese haiku in Japanese, they're printed vertically in one line. There isn't the breakout into 575 that we so often think of in English. And to me, I love this idea that a haiku is like this slow but essential unfolding of an experience, and then it stops. So haiku is very much a shadow behind vectors where I'm thinking of these are like one-liners that something sort of unfolds, and then it, you let it go. And then another one comes, almost like a procession of haikus. And how do you approach classical Chinese? I'm just curious how you view uh, poetry and, and the classical tradition. Uh, when I was a student at University of California at Berkeley, I really learned my craft translating the ancient Chinese poems, Li Bai, Du Fu, Wang Wei. And I wrote those poems out character by character, stroke by stroke in my own handwriting. And it was really great. It was like trying to understand how these poems were constructed and created and the kind of force and vitality that they had, that they could be, you know, over a thousand years old and still be so immediate. And that was really helpful to me. But I also got to the stage where I felt like now I have to break it apart. I have to take that urn and just smash it. Because if you look at the vocabulary, it's like moon, you know, wine, river. It's like Lorca, you know, his talismanic <laughs> right, right. Uh, key words. I thought I need to put more of the world into the poem. And of course, vectors is sort of like years later, something that I'm taking hopefully a little pride in doing that the world has sort of broken open. Yes. But one of the things I have learned strategically from classical Chinese poetry is juxtaposition, how mm. almost like magnetism, you can place certain lines or images against each other and create a kind of tension or heat or, or light. I love that. That's well said. So I know you're collected in new poems. The Glass Constellation is coming out next year, is it? 
Yes, in April. Can you tell us a little about that? What was it like putting it together and, and what are the new poems like? It's really a wonderful opportunity to be able to put together all of the poems I've published in 10 books. Uh, I told my editor, Michael Weekers, there's some early poems I don't need to see again. So uh, I went through my first two books and, uh, you know, maybe half of them are there. Right, right. I felt like the ones I could live with. But it was really helpful for me to see the kind of arc and how my work has progressed. And then with the section of new poems, I felt glad to see... I was trying to do certain things I'd never done before. So speaking of haiku, I wrote a haiban piece called Asekia del Llano. It's the irrigation ditch that is uphill from our house here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I wrote, instead of prose and haiku, prose and haiku, which is the Japanese form, I wrote prose and haiku, prose, and then two seven-syllable lines so that the haiku and the two seven-syllable lines would create a tanka in mm. English that were separated by the haibuns. Wow. So there were like poems inside of the poem. And ostensibly, it's a pastoral narrative. You know, the speaker goes <laughs> right, up to a right. ditch, irrigates. But formally, you could look at just the four haikus in the poem. There are four sections. Are they the four seasons? You know, I'm just throwing out a lot of different ways of looking at it. You could read the tankas as two sets. So it was a lot of fun. It was something I'd never done before. Wow, I love that. And uh, the title, where does that come from, The Glass Constellation? The Glass Constellation comes actually out of ancient East Indian philosophy, which is what's called Indra's net. And the idea is that everything in the world and the cosmos is interconnected. So if you imagine that every little thing that happens it's not insignificant. Think of it like a piece of glass in an immense chandelier. And when you shine light into the chandelier, each hanging piece reflects and absorbs the light from every other. When I learned about IntrustNet, I thought, wow, this is great. Someday I'm going to use this image and uh, became the title to the book. Well, and the description you have of it, that every piece illuminates the others, uh, takes me back to vectors in that way that each one, and, and maybe it's through a glass darkly in this instance, but they really do illuminate each other and cast a shadow too. I mean, there's a real tension. Is it going to be in the new uh, section? Uh, vectors is written too recently to be <laughs> in the glass constellation. So that'll be another book down the road. <laughs> That's really great. Well, and I, I think what that reminds us of is, you know, I worked for Michael S. Harper and he once said to me, he was putting together his collected poems and he used to say to me, you know, frankly, a little grumpily, collected ain't complete. You know, he was, because I think complete poems for him was really scary as an idea. I mean, it might be for everyone, but collected is like, you do get to do a little what you're saying, like, you know, maybe some of those early ones, you know, aren't exactly what you want to see. But I also think that arc is so important, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. Do you have a way to describe that arc? Uh, I guess in a few words, I would say the early books show a clear apprenticeship to classical Chinese poetry. They value concision. They uh, prioritize the visual image. They like a poem that's sort of well-made. And there are even poems named after Wang Wei and Li Bai, two Tang Dynasty poets. But there's really a break, I think, 
with my fifth book, Archipelago, where suddenly fragments start appearing. It's like the metaphor of the ceramic vase. It's been thrown down and broken apart and shattered. And the shards have value in themselves, but then there's a stage where I'm writing what I like to think of as sequences. I'm not writing a poem in 18 or 20 lines, but I'm thinking of the way that music has certain repeats and melodies come back or riffs or certain turns and twists. And so the field of energy is much bigger and, and the tones are shifting and I'm trying to have cursing and ecstatic moments and terrible moments and just really trying to break open the range of the poem. And for me, that was exciting to be writing sequences. And then in Kipu, I literally was pushing myself with syntax and language. Like I took one poem and I looked at all the different dictionary definitions of the word as, and I thought to myself, this can be a secret a reader doesn't need to know, but for me, it helps me write it. (laughs) Every time I use the word as, I'm going to use it with a different dictionary definition. It's like threading or sewing, or I wanted to make poems that were suddenly one sentence long, but 30 lines long. And, you know, maybe there are some excesses in that book. That's okay. But I clearly was trying to push language in different ways. And then in my last couple of books, they've been obsessed with forms of punctuation, the semicolon, the colon. And Sidelines uses the dash, which is, you know, normally if you're jumping from one subject to another. But the book really pushes the dash to an extreme where things are being disrupted. There are disruptions inside of the disruption And the book ends with a dash, so it ends incomplete. So I I feel like, you know, it never ends. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well said. That's a good place for us to end. Arthur, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Vectors by Arthur Z, as well as Robert Haas's The Problem of Describing Trees, can be found on newyorker.com. Robert Haas's most recent book is Summer Snow. Arthur Z's latest collection is Sightlines. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Hannah Eisenman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.